looking forward to our time together in God's Word. I want to encourage you to turn to the book of Malachi, chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3. We're taking a short break from our journey through Romans right now. We're working through the book of Malachi. We'll finish next week, and in September we will get back to Romans um, as we continue to walk through that New Testament book. But today is Malachi chapter 3. Malachi is Old Testament prophet. He is the last book of the Old Testament, so if you know where Matthew is, just go backwards one book and you'll be in Malachi chapter 3. That is our text for today. Uh, Pastor Jeremy has led you through chapters 1 and 2. Uh, we're picking up at chapter 3 today, really in verse 17 of chapter 2 through the first half of chapter 3. Uh, and it's an important book for us. Uh, it's an important book because, as we know, after chapters 1 and 2, uh, Israel has returned to their land after being in exile, but they weren't well. They weren't doing well. The walls had been rebuilt. The Jerusalem was rebuilt, the temple now had been rebuilt, but they were not doing well. They were suffering. They were suffering economically, they were suffering agriculturally, but their worst problem was they were suffering spiritually. They'd grown apathetic. They lacked a zeal for God, and they were suffering. So as we think about this, as we think about where they were, I want us to pick up in chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to be reading down through verse 12 of chapter 3. This is the word of the Lord. We read, You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, How have we wearied him? By saying, Everyone who does evil is good in, in the sight of the Lord, and he delights in them. Or by asking, Where is this God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming, and who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings and righteousness to the Lord. An offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be swift, a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me, but you say, how have we robbed you? In your tithes and contributions. You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. Bring the full tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. I will rebuke the devourer for you, so that it will not destroy the fruits of your soil, and your vine in the field shall not fail to bear, says the Lord of hosts. Then all nations will call you blessed, for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We know that it is true, and we know that you, by your spirit, use it to make us holy. So, Father, would you help us now understand it? Would you transform us by it? And would you continue your good work in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, here's a question for you to consider this morning. Have you ever had someone question your character? Maybe they've not outright called you a lying cheat, but they've raised questions about your integrity. Or maybe been concerned how you've handled a particular situation. 
Maybe there was good reason for them to raise the issue. But we know there are also times when some people presume the worst about us. And one of the things that can impact a human relationship the most is to presume the worst about someone and in the end be wrong. Well, it's that kind of situation we find here in Malachi chapter 2 and 3. The difference, though, is that it's the people of God who have come to a wrong conclusion about the nature and character of God. So in this situation, it's not another person questioning the character of another person. It's the people of God questioning the character of God. See, the returned exiles had reached a new low as they questioned God. It basically charged God with approving and delighting in evil and questioned the absence of His justice. They had concluded that God was ultimately to blame for all of the spiritual complacency and all that was wrong in Israel. Ultimately, God was to blame for that. You see, they had come to a wrong judgment about God. Brothers and sisters, if we, as the people of God, whether in Malachi's day or whether in 2018, if we are going to faithfully serve the Lord, it must begin by understanding the truth about God. If we are going to faithfully serve God, we must rightly understand God. We must see him for who he truly is. Another way we could say this, maybe from the negative point of view, is to get God wrong in our thinking, that will result in a catastrophic trajectory in our Christian lives. If you get God wrong, you're going to get life wrong. Malachi chapter 4, or chapter 3, really helps us understand who it is God is. In the midst of the people questioning who he is, notice that in verse 17 of chapter 2. The prophet's speaking to them and says, you have wearied the Lord. He's just using human language. God cannot be wearied. He does not grow tired. We know that. But using human language to describe the Lord, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Well, they're like, well, what have we said? By saying, everyone who does evil is good. In the sight of the Lord. You see what they're concluding? They're saying that the Lord delights in evil. The reason we have all of this bad stuff going on around us is because God must like it. God must delight in it, or else it wouldn't be happening. Wrong conclusion. Or by asking, Where is the God of justice? Surely, if God was good, He wouldn't allow these things to continue. Surely, if God hated evil, if he hated sin, he wouldn't allow these these things to continue on. So you see the, the conclusions that they have drawn about God. They were attributing evil to him. That was their conclusion. But we see here that God responds to this. And as God responds to this, he gives us really several reasons. We're going to look at four reasons this morning why it is the character of God can be trusted. We're going to see four reasons from God's response to these complacent people, to these confused people, to these people who had misunderstood the nature and character of God. He gives us four reasons why God's character can be and must be trusted. So that's what we're going to walk through this morning here in chapter 3. Four reasons why God's character can be trusted. Let's look at these together. Number one, God is faithful to act. One of the reasons that we, as the people of God, can always trust God despite what's going on, us, going on around us, we can know this. God is faithful always to act. Sometimes we are not very patient, are we? We're not a very patient people. Even, especially, when facing difficult situations. And sometimes, in our impatience about a particular situation, we make poor decisions, or we come to wrong conclusions. I think that's a great analogy of what we see here going on with the people of God. 
things were not well with them spiritually. The people of Judah had grown to become frustrated with God because things were not like they expected. It was not like the old days. Well, this is not how it was back when David was here. You see, they had been taken out of the land and put into exile and dominated for 70 years, and now they were back in the land, released from captivity. The walls had been rebuilt. The city was being rebuilt. The temple now had been rebuilt. Worship was resuming in the land, and the people of God were miserable. They were miserable. We've seen how this has played out already in the book of Malachi. In chapter 1, we see that they they had come to groan to doubt God's love for them. Verse 2 of chapter 1, how have you loved us? God, how have you loved us? We notice as you keep reading in chapter 1 that many of the priests, the religious leaders of the day were phonies. They lacked a fear of God and they profaned the worship of God by offering blemished sacrifices. The people were struggling with personal sin. They had intermarried with other nations, allowing the influence of pagan gods. And on and on we could go. You see, the people may have moved back into the promised land, but they still resembled more of Babylon than they did being the people of God, the covenant people of God. And their conclusion? It's God's fault. It's God's fault. It wouldn't be this way if He truly loved us. You see, one of the lessons God wants us to learn is that while things may seem dire, while things around us may not be what we expect or even desire, it is no indication that God is absent or that God has somehow changed. God is not an absent landlord. This is one of the things that that Malachi is helping the people understand You see, they were, in essence, accusing God with changing. All of the the laziness and the spiritual complacency that was going on and the the profane worship and the ungodly living, all of the things that that was going on in Israel, they had concluded, well, somehow it must be God changing because otherwise this wouldn't be happening. See, the people were wallowing in misery and all the while holding God in contempt. And what happens next is absolutely amazing. I just want you to think about the situation in Israel during this day. I want you to think about what's going on. People of God are back. Everything's rebuilt. Things are going well, at least externally, but internally it's a mess. They're not going well. You get into the text and you see, no, it's, it's not going well at all. And their conclusion is that it's God's fault. They're blaming God for delighting in evil. And so these are some serious accusations that they're making against God, aren't they? And you would think that in the midst of this situation, that God would just say, you know what, I'm tired of you people. I'm just going to wipe you out once and for all. Maybe I'll start over. But God doesn't do that. Even here in chapter 3, you see the testimony of God and His grace. God's response to these obstinate, complacent, lazy people that have now questioned the very character and nature of God, his response is not immediate judgment upon them. His response is grace. He says, you ask, where is my justice? Behold, I send my messenger to prepare the way before me. You see, God answers their complaint. He says, I will act. I am sending my messenger. And two things we see here in response to this, in his response. First of all, about this messenger. He says he's going to send a messenger, and there is going to be one who will bring my justice. The one who will execute justice. Behold, verse 1 of chapter 3, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming. Now it's interesting here that Malachi 
in a prophetic way, is pointing forward to the future arrival of the Messiah. But notice what he does. He was referring here in verse 1 to two different messengers. The first messenger, the messenger that will prepare the way before me, is a reference to John the Baptist. We know that he was the forerunner of the Messiah, that he came to pave the way for Jesus' coming. And it's Jesus in Matthew chapter 11, verse 10, that refers back to this very verse and affirms this is exactly who Malachi was talking about, the John the Baptist, the forerunner of the Messiah. So there would be a messenger that would come and prepare the way before the Lord. But then he also refers to this second messenger, the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. That he will suddenly come into his temple. See, there would be one who would come and execute the justice of God. And God looks ahead and says, I will act. And there will be one who will come. Not to mention it's still 400 years away. You see, they wanted immediate response. They wanted immediate justice. They want immediate answer. They wanted immediate solution to their problems and God says I am going to send one who will execute justice notice a few things about the messenger number one he was desired they had long awaited this messiah this anointed one you see there the the reference to that the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight says and the Lord whom you seek there was one that they were anticipating We're still under the Old Testament system here, and we know that the people of God were looking forward to the day when the Messiah would come and bring the hope, the fullness of hope to bear upon the people. So this was one that God said, hey, this is the one that you've been waiting for, the one that you delight in, the one that you seek. He's coming. He didn't tell them it's still going to be about 400 years away, but he is coming. He will come. And he's also divine. Notice it says that he comes suddenly into the temple. This is Old Testament language of the presence of God. This is just simply a a reminder that, that this is not just another person. This is God himself that will come. God in the flesh, as we know when we get to the New Testament. So what Malachi does here is he dabbles a little bit in eschatology, in, in in the end times. Notice here, in two verses really, that Malachi talks about, in response to where is God and his justice? Well, God's responding, and he says, I'm, I'm going to send my messenger. And in these two verses, he really covers the gamut of, of Jesus' first and second coming, doesn't he? He talks about the messenger, John the Baptist, that will prepare the way of the Lord, and then he talks about, really, the second coming of Christ, when he would come to bring the fullness of God's justice. You see, it's not a comprehensive unpacking of the ministry of Jesus. It's just simply a snapshot of, listen, I've made a promise that there will be one who will come, and he is coming. He is coming. You can think about this, when you think about the coming of Jesus, as kind of a mountain range. If you're standing, Dave and Amy, if you're standing looking at those massive mountains, wherever you were in Canada, you know, if you're standing beneath a mountain, you see it, it, it looks like one mountain, doesn't it? But if you were to get into a helicopter and it elevates you up above the mountain, oftentimes what you're going to see is there's a series of mountains that go beyond it, like a mountain range. And so really what Malachi is doing, he's just simply helping us see there's a mountain that's coming. And he doesn't really unpack, we get this in the New Testament, he doesn't unpack the fullness of the first coming of Jesus and then later the second coming, kind of like the mountain range. He just gives us a snapshot that there's a mountain and it's coming. And it is the Messiah that will come. Really, his main point is simply this. He says, God responds to the, to the complaints of the people. He says, I'm sending my messenger. And he, John, will prepare the way for the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, in whom you seek. I'm coming. Jesus, God is, is basically saying, I am coming through the person of Jesus Christ. You know, there's a few points for us to take away from this. When we think about the faithfulness of God to act in the midst of apparent injustice. God always has the long term in view. That's something we all would do well to, to learn, wouldn't it? You see, we live in such an instant society, and those little devices that are in your pockets or maybe in your hand right now, they've trained us to always want what's, what we want right now. 
mean, you could virtually talk to anybody you want to in the world that you know right now, couldn't you? Right? You could. I mean, we've, we're just being trained and trained and trained and trained to, to demand instantaneous results. You can basically have anything you want immediately. And if you, if you can't, you can pay Amazon $12.99 a month and they'll get it here in two days. Right? You see, there are days that I, too, look around at the world, look around even in my own sinful heart, and wonder why it is God is restraining his judgment upon the world. I mean, you look at the world, you look at all that's going on, you look at terrorism, you look at, you look at the, the, the rampant abuse, you look at all kinds of violence in the world today, and you wonder why is it that God is patient? Why doesn't he just send his angelic army down to do away with all that is wrong and all that is bad? Because we've all had those thoughts, haven't we? We've all had those questions. But we need to remember that God always has the long term in view. He is patient and he is long suffering and he is working on an eternal scale. By the way, it's something that we all should be glad for. Had he given us just justice, no one would stand. It's interesting, that's really kind of what he's saying here. He says, you're questioning where is my justice. You're, you're questioning why, why is it that, that, that it seems that God is just so patient with all the evil that's going on in the world. If God was to bring immediate justice, no one would stand. He is patient. And number two, another truth that we can take away is that God can be trusted. You see, it's, it's, it's interesting None of these people in Malachi's day would see the Messiah. Not one of them. No one would see the arrival of John, the forerunner, or especially Jesus. And none of them really had any notion of this first and second coming. All the Lord is telling them here is that Messiah will come. Yet in time, God did as he said. You know, we may wonder if the Lord is ever going to return and bring all things to their appointed end. But as sure as Christ came the first time, He will come again. He will come again. We may think, well, is He ever going to come back? It would be good for Him to come back soon. But friends, Malachi's, in Malachi's day, they were asking the same question. God, have you changed? Is, is, are we missing something? He said, no, I'm, I'm, I'm sending the Messiah. It's going to be about 400 years, but he's coming. You can trust me. So there's the idea here that there will be one who comes to execute justice, but there's also the objects of God's justice. We see that in verses 2 through 5. When the Lord comes, we're told, who can endure the day? But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire, like fuller's soap. When the Lord does come, he will bring his justice to bear. Friend, when you come to understand this, then you will not strictly desire the justice of God. You will also desire the grace of God. With the coming of the Messiah, what we see is both justice and grace, justice and mercy, purification and punishment. Notice, what, notice these things here with the coming of the Messiah, what we're going to see when he does come. First of all, we're going to see purification. This is not exactly what we would expect. When we think about, is God's justice ever going to be fulfilled? I'm going to send my Messiah. He's going to bring about, first of all, he's going to bring about purification. When the Lord comes, it's not as if his people are going to be overlooked. Here Malachi speaks of the Lord as being a refiner's fire and fuller's soap. A, a refiner's fire was a fire that was often used to refine valuable metal to make it pure. And Fuller's soap, it really wasn't soap. They didn't, have, they didn't have Old Spice back in this day. They didn't have Irish Spring or whatever it is you use. They, they didn't have soap as we know it. But they had this lye-based agent that was often used in cleaning clothes, helping to separate the dirt from the fabric. So this is what we're, we're hearing here is, 
is both of these, a refiner's fire and a fuller's soap, this lye-based agent, both of these were purifying agents that cleansed and made pure. And what we're being told here is that the Lord himself, when he comes, will be like this. He's coming to purify. He's coming to make right. He's coming to make holy. He's coming to ultimately cleanse and purify. I want you to think about when Jesus came. He came and he lived and he died on the cross. He was raised the third day and he ascended into heaven. And we're waiting on him to return. It's in Ephesians chapter 5 that the Apostle Paul wrote about the work of the Messiah. He's in this text here that's using marriage as an illustration to talk about the relationship between Christ and the church. And he says there, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. Notice what he does as he loves the church. As Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Why? Why did Jesus give himself up for the church? That he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. What does Jesus do when he comes to bring salvation? He comes to save us from our sins, absolutely. He comes to die as a substitute in our place, to bear the punishment upon himself so that our sins are forgiven, but he does more than that. He comes not just to take us to heaven. He comes to suit us for heaven. Something we need to keep in mind when we think about the person and work of Jesus. And as Malachi looks forward to this day, he comes as a purifier. He comes to make new and to purify that which has been stained and affected by sin. Notice here he refers to the sons of Levi. He says he will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver and he will purify the sons of Levi. You know, the Levites are the objects here and it seems that Malachi is using here the sons of Levi as this symbolic representation of a cleansed and sanctified church because when you get to the New Testament, we know that the church is referred to as the holy priesthood. So the very sons of Levi, the holy priesthood, are going to be cleansed, purified, fit for heaven, Brothers and sisters, understand this is what God is doing in you right now. He is purifying you, and when he returns, he is going to make you fit for heaven. Amen. Praise God for that. But brothers and sisters, the one who comes in mercy to bring purification for his people is also the one that comes in his justice. He is also the one that comes to bring about righteous punishment. Look at verse 5. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker and his wages, the widow and the fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. Friends, there will be mercy in the coming of Jesus, but there will also be justice. Several kinds of offenders are named here. The sorcerers, adulterers, perjurers, those who oppress workers, those who oppress widows and orphans, those who oppress immigrants and sojourners, those who do not fear the Lord. You see, their violations cover an array of crimes. If you read this entire passage, just a sampling of the kinds of things that God will come to judge. And we can see that it ranges anywhere from sorcery to adultery to a breakdown of social justice. And those who violate God's standard, we're told here, they will be held accountable. They will be. We have to remember that that God, again, He doesn't work on our time scale, thankfully. We're reminded in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 8, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise. You hear that? That's what 
people of Malachi's day were saying, Lord, you're either slow or you've changed. Peter reminds us the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise. As some of you count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but all should reach repentance. Brothers and sisters, one of the things that we ought to be thankful for is the fact that God is a patient God. We ought to be grateful that God delays his, the fullness of his justice so that he makes time for there to be repentance, so that he makes time for the people of God to come to him. See, those who do violate God's standards, they will be held accountable. A few things for us to take from this, a few things to ponder is, first of all, is that only in Christ, only in Jesus Christ do we find the perfect fulfillment of both justice and grace. In the coming of Jesus, that's what we have. We come, we, we come to the ministry of Christ, and we know that he lived a life of perfection, he died upon the cross for sin, and it's at the cross that the full wrath and judgment of God against the sins of those who would trust in him are fully paid for. So it's not as if God just, when he brings grace to people, mercy, when he purifies us, it's not as if he just overlooks our sin. No, he punishes it in Christ. He bears the weight of the sin that we've, that we've committed against him. Christ then acts to purify us. And friend, if you're here today and you've never placed your faith and hope in Jesus Christ, know this, that the, He is the only one that can, can make you right with God. He's the only one that can bring the full justice of God upon His own shoulders so as to bear the weight of your sin. So that if you would simply look to Him and believe in Him and trust in Him, your sins will be forgiven. You don't have to, to do something to, 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 act, to earn forgiveness. You don't have to come up with some kind of forgiveness plan. God did that. He did it in Christ. And if you'll simply look to Christ, put your hope and trust in Him, your sins will be forgiven once and for all. That is the hope that is available for you today. One of the things that we need to take away from this is to know that God's justice will come. He will come to purify His people, but He will also come to bring judgment against those who rebel against Him. Another thing that we could take away from this is we should not forsake matters of justice like helping the needy or the oppressed or the stranger. One of the things I take away from this is the way we live and the way we treat others is a reflection of our faithfulness to God. You know, there's a lot of talk today about social justice in the church. There are some who are against it. There are some who think that that's all we should do. But one thing is clear. God does call us to care about those who are oppressed. Discussion as to the extent of what that looks like, that is needed. One thing that we can't deny, though, is that God's people are called to care for the needy and the oppressed. And as we do that, it is a reflection of our true heart for God. One of the things that you see here is Malachi, in Malachi's day, the people of God were calling for justice. They were calling for the justice of God while neglecting matters of justice themselves. They were hypocrites. They're saying, God, bring justice to bear upon these evil people, and they weren't willing to lift a finger to try to help the situation. Another truth that we take away is that God will act to purge his people of sin. Brothers and sisters, we would do well to consider our ways before a holy and righteous God and not wait until we're called to account on the day of judgment, but understand that God calls us to repent today. So we'll see that as we continue in this passage. So that's the first point, and the good news is that's the longest point, okay? I've been out three weeks, so I'm just making up for lost time. Hope the seats are comfortable. All right, number two, God is faithful. And these will go a little quicker, maybe. God is faithful to his promise. So God is faithful to act. Number two, God is faithful to his promise. You see that in verse six. Here in verse six, we have a significant truth that, that, we, that we would do well to meditate on for a moment. God, in his response to the people of Israel, he says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob are not consumed. You know, I read and thought about that verse this past week, and that has to be some of the most comforting words in all of the Old Testament. 
Do you hear what he just said? They're whining and complaining. They're accusing God of really delighting in evil, and they're, they're questioning the character of God. They're questioning if his justice is even going to happen. And God says, oh, it's going to happen, all right. I'm sending the Messiah, to, and he will come, and he will bring judgment, and he will bring purification. And then he justifies that in the nature of who he is. He says, for I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, will not be consumed. This is amazing. What we have here is the teaching of what we call divine immutability. The fact that God in his character does not and cannot change. It's not that he's in a good mood one day and the next day he's in a bad mood. God is not a schizophrenic. He's, he's not someone that you just never know where he's going to be. He is stable and he is steadfast and he is someone that you can always depend upon. He does not change. Does he respond differently to different situations? Absolutely. We see that even here in this text as he calls them to repentance. He says, return to me and I'll return to you. That does not mean that he has some kind of defect in his character that he somehow changes in his character. No, he, re he remains the same. God does not change. You see, they were basically making the accusation that God was the one that changed. And he's basically telling them, listen, I'm not the one that's changed. You're the one that's changed. God always remains faithful to his character. Even when we read the verses of God relenting or responding to the people's repentance, he still is acting within the bounds of his holy character. And the, really the key to this, this verse, the takeaway from this verse for us, is what this is saying is huge. It is saying that God will never go back on his promise. God had made a covenant promise to his people long ago that he would have a people for his own possession and that there would be this covenant that would be lasting forever and that there would be this, this one who would ultimately come in the person of Jesus Christ that would be the one that will fulfill these truths and these promises. What we see here is that God is saying, I do not change and I will not go back on my promise. No matter how bad you are, no matter how wrong you've done me, I will not consume you, O children of Jacob. May not be real happy with you right now. Acting like a bunch of knuckleheads. You're, you're, you're not doing well. You're lazy. You're, you have no zeal for me. You're offering profane worship to me. As we've seen in just a moment, you're robbing me of tithes and contributions. You're doing all these things. You're acting like Babylonians still. You're acting like the world. And yet, you're not going to be consumed because I'm faithful to my promise. I'm a gracious God. And although you deserve to be punished forever, I will not go back on my promise. This is good news for us, friends. For those whom God saves, He will always keep to the end. Great American Presbyterian back in the 1800s, Thomas More, said this The perseverance of the saints is guaranteed, not by their unchangeable love to God, but by His unchangeable love to them and His eternal purpose and promise in Christ Jesus. You see, the perseverance of the saints, the fact that you will be secure to the end is not dependent upon how much you love God in a given time, in a given day, but on how much He loves you and how, much, how, how, how committed He is to see you through to the end. Oh, we may be burned by the refiner's fire, but praise be to God, we shall not be finally consumed by it. See, when we see the world caving in around us and we see affliction, we see things going on that aren't right, we see things even messed up in our own lives, we see the effects of sin and suffering even in our own hearts, when we look around and we just see the rampant immorality and all the, the things that are going on in this world, what we do is we come back to Malachi 3 verse 6 and remember the Lord does not change and we shall not be finally consumed. Because God is a gracious God, He is faithful to His promises. 
And we'll do it in just a few moments, but we can sing that great hymn of the faith. Great is thy faithfulness, O God, my Father. There is no shadow of turning with thee. Thou changest not thy compassions. They fail not. As thou hast been, thou forever wilt be. Praise be to our faithful God who keeps his promise. Point number three, God is faithful to renew. We're going to look at this quickly. Though God does hold fast his people to the end, he still holds his people accountable for their sins in the present. Israel's unfaithfulness was not a new development, right? <laughs> Just read the Old Testament. This is not something new. Here we are again. They had been in a long line, a long pattern of unfaithfulness. And God was not simply content to overlook their sin. He caused them to return. Notice there in the text in verse 8, or uh, verse 7. Middle of there, the verse, he says, Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. Again, grace here. He's giving them yet another opportunity to repent. Return to me, I'll return to you. But you say, how shall we return? You see, they didn't see the need for repentance. The people of God thought, hey, the problem's not with us, the problem's with you. What, what do you mean return? How, how shall we do that? Well, God calls them out bluntly here. He says, well... One example is that you're robbing me. Well, how have we, what do you mean, robbing you? How have we robbed you? He says, holding back some of the tithes and contributions. See, in the Old Testament economy, the tithe, actually there were multiple tithes, a tenth of one's income or produce of the land. They were called to give that as an offering. And this offering covered many different things. It was partly the sanctuary offerings that were taken. It also included taxes for the nation and charitable gifts. And so there were all kinds of things. When you think about the tithe of the Old Testament, the Old Testament covenant, there were many things that were included in this tithe. The, the regular giving, also it was a theocracy of sorts, and so there was this aspect of taxes for the nation and other charitable gifts. And in fact, if you were to add all of the tithes mandated in the Old Covenant, you would find there was a lot more than 10% that was required. Sometimes it would stretch to 30 to 40% of one's income or resources or produce that they had. And Israel's failure to give this tithe, this tenth of what they had, God is saying was clear evidence of their ingratitude and disloyalty to him. And this disobedience was partly to blame for the curse that the land was experiencing. See, one of the things they were struggling with was agriculture, and part of it was due to their own unfaithfulness. As people of the covenant promised, they owed their lives and possessions to God, and withholding these offerings, or when they did give an offering, the priest would give an unblemished offering, or uh, one that was uh, not pure, they would do so just out of, the least of what they had. Now we read this, and we've probably heard many of sermons if we've been in church on this passage, and, and we, we hear, will man rob God? And how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Bring the full tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Immediate question that comes to mind, well, is that still in, in practice today? Should we still do this today? If that's the question you're asking about this verse, when you first hear it, it's the wrong question to ask. Usually when I, when I hear this passage, the first question people, well, are we still required to give a tenth of our income today? First question, it's the wrong question to ask out of the box. Not a bad question, just the wrong one to ask first. If that's your first question, then you, I think you've missed the entire point of this text. This example of tithing was an illustration of the people's attitude towards God. Their lack of giving the tithe was, a, was an expression, was really a statement of their hearts. And God is just using this to, to expose their heart and to, to show them that they're truly being unfaithful. They're not depending upon Him to, to meet their needs. They're not looking to Him. They're not trusting Him. And He's just basically saying, you're robbing me, and, and it's, it's showing really the reality of your own heart. They didn't trust the Lord. We know that the tithe was part of the Old Covenant and had direct implications to the nation of Israel and the land. And it was much more complicated 
than we want to make it out to be. It, it included so many different aspects of even, even the national tax system and, and all these things. It was, a, it was a little bit more complicated than just simply the passing of a plate in a church service. It included many different things. And clearly we're not in the same position. We're not under the same covenant responsibilities and obligations as those in the old covenant. However, if you approach this text and say, Old Covenant, not applicable. And you approach it as a justification to keep for yourself as much as possible. You are no different than the greedy, self-sufficient, lazy, apathetic Israelites of Malachi's day. What this text does teach us Today, regardless of which side of the cross we fall on, God's people are always called to demonstrate gratitude and dependence upon God, especially in our giving, because giving and stewardship is a reflection of our faithfulness or the lack thereof. One of my favorite verses of the New Testament about giving is found in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Really, that's what God is teaching the Israelites here. Your heart is far from me because it's evident in your treasures. It's evident in your giving. What is common to both the Old Testament and the New Testament is that giving is not discretionary to the point of giving according to our individual preference. What's clear in both the Old and the New Testament is that giving ought to be in proportion to our income. It ought to be regular and sacrificial. So people oftentimes will say, well, are we still required to tithe? I'll say, technically, in a covenant sense, no, we're not required to give 10%. But it's a good place to work from. I think we should see 10% not as a ceiling, but as a floor. It's a good principle. St statistics indicate today that 80% of American churchgoers give anywhere between 2 and 3%. And brothers and sisters, that is a horrible tragedy. It's a horrible tragedy, not simply because the church could do so much more in ministry and in missions. But it's a tragedy because it shows just how disengaged so many hearts are in faithfulness to the Lord. Now, I say that and I also acknowledge that we're a very generous church. I want to thank you for your generosity, but the reason I speak about these percentages is because some of you, many perhaps, fall into that kind of category. God doesn't need your money. We're not a church that's going to uh, make you feel guilty so that you'll give more. I'm just simply telling you that your giving is an expression of your faithfulness to the Lord. Your giving is an expression of your faithfulness to the Lord. It's an insight to your heart and what your heart desires and what your heart wants. Brothers and sisters, if you invest in what's eternal and trust Him Know that the very things that we have ultimately belong to him to begin with. And what you give is just one measure of your faith and a reflection of your gratitude and trust in God. We're going to be talking more about giving in the future. I understand that. But we need to understand this, that this was a serious indictment that God was making upon these people. He's, he's basically saying, your giving reflects your spiritual apathy. Again, to quote Thomas More, he said, no man has lost anything by serving God with a whole heart or gained anything by serving Him with half a one. Friends, God called His people to return to Him, not just with their wallets, but with their hearts. And as a result, we see this in number four, and very quickly, God is faithful to bless. No one has ever regretted faithfulness. Have you ever been faithful to God and regretted it? It might have been hard because of some of the immediate things that have happened in your life, maybe in a negative way, but I don't believe anyone has ever regretted being faithful to God. He calls here, bring in the full tithes to the storehouse that there may be food. Again, there was a direct connection of what was going on in the land and the provision of food with the people and, and how they gave. And God points out a direct correlation here to the, His blessing and their giving. If you return to me and give me your whole heart, you can rest with confidence that every need of yours will be met. Even the nations around you will call you blessed. And notice the way he commands them. He says in verse 11, or excuse me, verse uh, 10, 
He says, thereby put me to the test, says the Lord. Test me. He says, dare me with your obedience. Dare me. Test me. Put me to the test with your obedience. And I believe that's a good word for us all. While the context here is quite different, the principle is still the same. God delights in blessing God's, uh, the people of God's faithfulness. Obedience brings blessing. Unfaithfulness brings cursing. Again, this is not an elaborate health and wealth teaching. It's a simple promise that we see that we'll have all that we ever need when we're being faithful to the Lord. Friend, this is a simple call. If you're living unfaithfully, return to the Lord. Return to the Lord, and He will return to you. You know, sometimes life obstructs our view of God. Sometimes we, we experience things, and we're in the midst of suffering, and in the midst of different things in our lives, and, and we just begin to see God from a different point of view. And we begin to come to wrong conclusions about who He is. But a simple look at His Word today helps us correct course. Friends, remember, if your view of God is wrong, the way you live your life will also go wrong. But God is a faithful God. He is faithful to act. He is faithful to keep His promise. He is faithful to renew those who repent. And He is faithful to bless. He's always been this way, and He will always be. Friends, let's remember that God is a God who is faithful. And He calls us to the same, that we too would be faithful. And that we would turn to Him. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this reminder this morning. We thank you for this teaching of what it means to be faithful. We ask now, Lord, that you would lead us in that this very day and this very week. Father, we would acknowledge there are many ways in our lives that we have shown unfaithfulness. We acknowledge, Lord, that there are ways that we have shown disloyalty to you. We, we've even come to wrong conclusions about you at times. Lord, we've, we've blamed you with things we should never blame you with. Father, would you search the depths of our hearts today and would you call us to repentance? Would you call us to confess? And would you call us to, to respond today in faithfulness? Father, it may be that we hear these words, return to me and I will return to you. And Lord, you're calling us to return in a very specific way. Father, would you move upon our hearts today and would you help us to bear fruit in our lives for your glory? God, would you banish any level of spiritual apathy, spiritual laziness in our lives? Would you call us to be zealous and faithful, all for your glory, we pray. We lift this up in Christ's name. Amen.